0: Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway.
1: And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing.
0: Today we're joined by a Tony-winning director, producer, lyric writer, writer, and a creative consultant all the world into the person of Richard Maltby, Jr. Welcome, Richard.
2: Well, welcome... Welcome back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Let me just give a really quick rundown. Uh, you've been known certainly over the years working with David Shire on many different shows, Closer Than Ever, starting here, starting now. Your own shows that you've had uh, uh, you know, you either come up with a concept or you've created, you've directed, shows like Ain't Misbehaving*, Baby that you and David wrote together, Big that you and David wrote, uh, Fosse, many others. And now on Broadway, a show that you've been the creator of and the director, Ring of Fire, the Johnny Cash musical. So I to speak.
2: know, wouldn't you? Do you think Richard Maltby? You think country and western, don't you? Yeah. Immediately springs totally springs to goes mind. right to yeah. mind yeah. those cowboy boots and everything. Well, <laughs> Since you speak with sarcasm, how did it happen? Um, well, listen, I'm, I, I, I went through a whole period of wearing nothing but cowboy boots. So I mean, it's in the blood, you know. Uh, no, a friend of mine named, named Bill Mead uh, came to me. He'd been uh, he had the idea of using Johnny Cash uh, for uh, for a Broadway show and and uh, had been. Uh, Pursuing it for five years, he uh, went to Nashville. Got to know Johnny. Uh, um, it took a while for Johnny to warm up to the idea of uh, his material being on Broadway. I mean, he kept thinking, you know, sequins and chorus girls. What is this? Uh, and it took a while before uh, Bill could uh, tell him that it could be dealt with with uh, sort of integrity and, and uh, with uh, a real honesty for for what's in the songs and. Uh, and then just before he died, um, Johnny gave uh, Bill the rights to the, the, all of his material.
1: But without a specific concept, you'd not come on board
2: at this point? No, no, no. Then he brought it to me and, and, and said, uh, here's the Johnny Cash catalog. Uh, what would you like to do? He, You know, I had done Ain't Misbehaving," which is sort of the, uh, the, the watershed for uh, uh, tributes to a songwriter and a performer. And uh, he thought perhaps I could do the same thing with... Uh, with a country and western icon and um, I was skeptical at first because I didn't know that I would, I didn't know I could, you know, do it and I didn't know how theatrical the material was. To my great astonishment, I thought, I found out that it was very theatrical. (laughs) He's, uh, Johnny Cash writes honestly and he writes in in the voice of a person talking to somebody else so that the songs are dramatizable, the songs, you know, can go on the stage.
0: Which is also kind of the nature of country music in general. It is. And Johnny Cash in particular. Johnny
2: Cash in particular. I mean, country music is all... I've always loved country lyrics. I mean, it's a real tell-it-like-it-is kind of uh, lyric writing, you know. Um, You... uh, you left your wedding ring in the soap dish when you went into town what's going on i mean it's it's the, the, you know we we there are no euphemisms and no uh, you know poetic flights it's 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 cut and dried and and um and the lyrics that johnny Cash wrote um are constantly surprising they they're just they're they're um very uh, unexpected and um and very rich johnny's a real poet. A real American poet, a real artist, and I came to know him through his work uh, more than I ever expected to, and to respect and honor him. Um, and <laughs> I know it's kind of sounds fun- funny, but I became—I'm really very fond of him. I'm—I really became so um, touched by his heart that in in that he poured in all the things that he poured into the songs either the songs he wrote or the songs that he recorded that he didn't write there there's a personal connection with them all and uh and I thought the show would just be um incredibly touching um on a stage and I must say we find people every night. um, You know, they come in, they're hand clapping, they're tapping their toes and everything and then unexpectedly they are crying and and they're moved and they're touched and I think that's kind of what thrills me.
0: You and I had spoken a month or two ago when the show was still very much in the rehearsal process before it was even on on a stage in a rehearsal Mm -hmm, hall. And I forget the exact words you used but you went on... Something to the effect of it's a story without a book, it's you know, that sort of a thing. Uh, for those who have not yet seen it, because it's brand new, it just, just mm-hmm. opened, um, how would you characterize the show itself? Well, I've right. sort of stopped trying to characterize
2: it as, a, as a, whether it has a book or it doesn't. It, it's, it's, it is certainly a, a collection of Johnny Cash songs. It's 37 songs organized in such a way that there is. Um, uh, an awful lot of of the feeling of 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 of, uh, of a story going on, uh, even though uh, it's not it's not specific. It this kind of show, as with Ain't Misbehaving has a double obligation. The first obligation is just to be wildly entertaining, and that's the reason why you eliminate the the book so you can go from entertainment piece to entertainment piece. Um, after that, it's filled with character. It's filled with Relationships—it's filled with um, heart, and uh, and people start making those connections, and in, 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 into uh, into a kind of a story, and and that's fine. They can do it, they can do it or not as as they as they wish. Some people see Johnny Cash's life in 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 the songs, and that's perfectly fair game.
0: Well, for the, again for the radio audience. The show is basically 14 people on stage. Yes. Eight of whom are very talented musicians who also do some singing and performing, but basically musicians. You had mm-hmm. told me right. many of them come from Nashville. They do. The other six people are actors, three guys, three girls, mm-hmm. and three different age groups, right. young, medium, and a little bit older. Yes, because I wanted uh, – you know,
2: Johnny Cash had a, had a 50-year career, and uh, there are people who – Think of Johnny Cash as the scrawny kid who recorded "Cry, Cry, Cry," and and uh, I walk the line in the fifties. There are people who think of him as the television star, the sort of imposing uh, person from the television show at the in the early seventies. And then there are people like my children who know the unplugged records from the nineties, where he's this craggy Willie Nelson kind of uh, you know man mountain icon and. All of them are true, mm-hmm. so it's it's as as interesting to me that it's about a a, a life lived over time as it is um, you know at a, at at any one moment. Uh, the movie was a wonderful movie, I thought I walked along, but it really only deals with one rather small part of his life. He had a lot of other life in there. And I, I think
0: you would also characterize it as the three uh, groups of actors, male and female in each group, the young ones, the medium, and the older. They could be or could not be Johnny and they June. They could be Johnny and At June, June growing
2: older. Yeah. They could be that, but they can also be three generations of one family. And that's another aspect of, of, of what he wrote about. He wrote... He wrote very a very interesting thing in his autobiography. He said, you know, there's um, people talk about country, uh, uh, and they talk about it. I, I think it, the country that I know almost doesn't exist anymore. People who are on the radio now talk about country and think it's boots and pickup trucks. Um, you know, I don't know if they've ever picked cotton in the field. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, well, back then, a way of life produced a kind of music the family together the generations of the family went out picked cotton sang in the fields all day that's where they sang gospel music they sang what was on the radio they sang and and from that came a way of life as opposed to modern country which is basically a way of life that produces uh you know i mean it's a it's kind of country kind of music that produces a way of life so um uh, and he was w- wondering because, of course, Johnny was was uh, rather ignored by the country music establishment, and was not. He's now, you know, the idol because he's dead. But because, but <laughs> but uh, when he was alive, uh, the 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 Nashville community often ignored him, and uh, uh, and that was always rather rather painful to him
1: you obviously made the choice to not represent him literally mm-hmm. you'd not as you say walk the line the film represents a certain slice of his life at any point were you thinking about actually portraying him on stage it was
2: it was almost the first decision that i made i read the autobiography which has all the material that's in the movie i basically saw the movie in my head reading the book uh, And I thought, on the stage, I don't know, do we want to see yet another um, popular music star go down this long uh, road of drugs and, and, uh, uh, you know, loss until he's uh, redeemed? You can kind of get away with it in a movie. It really would be discouraging on stage. And there wasn't songs to support it. Uh, You know, if you're telling a story of Janis Joplin or... Jimmy Hendrix, you can tell the story of drugs because that's what the songs are about. I mean, that's you know that's what they wrote about. That was the the entire subject of of of, uh, of their songs. Uh, Johnny Cash was writing about something else. He was writing about this country world that doesn't exist anymore, families and warmth, uh, people attached to the land, people finding joy in in, in against hardship. Uh, 5 feet high and rising which is a song about uh you know l- enduring one of those floods that came through off at when the mississippi overflowed and uh um and that's the kind of life that that these farm families dealt with there is in the song daddy sang bass which is a absolutely bouncy uh wonderful uh, uh exuberant song um uh he says uh, uh, in the middle of it, little uh, little brother is done going on, but while we join him in a song, we'll be together in the great uh, hereafter in a little while. And you think, wait a minute, what's that doing in this bouncy song? He, this family has suffered a tragedy. A, a, a young A brother has died, and they're still singing. And, of course, that's the whole point of the song, Life was hard and things are bad, but you can hear us singing for a country mile. Music seems to help a troubled soul. It's not about sweetness and light. It's about finding joy in a hard life. Also, I guess, in effect, life goes on. And life goes on. It's, it's the the basic terms of living. And I think that's the, that's the part that I think is, is really thrilling about Ring of Fire. What I'm really proud of is that I think it puts people in touch with basic things about living, and it, they are moved and they are touched in ways that I think surprise them, and that's when I'm, you know, I'm well, really
0: pleased with it. Well, speaking of Daddy Sang Bass, and uh, it's a perfect setup that you just opened the door for us, uh, the commercially available CD has not yet been recorded and released, however it will be, and you have brought with you today a copy, like an advanced copy of a couple that, of the songs that's that true. are in the show, including Daddy Sang Bass. Let's hear it. So I guess we should probably listen to it. And this is essentially the whole company, I guess. It is the whole company, yeah. Involved?
2: I mean, I started out dividing it with the six, the six principals and the eight members of the band. Uh, but the band members were so multi-talented that the question was, can, it moved from can I involve the, the band in the action to how much can I involve them? So in this particular number, all 14 gather around a dinner table And uh, they say grace, and then that
0: explodes into this song. And for the first time anywhere other than at the Barrymore Theater, here is Daddy Sang Bass from Ring of Fire. For the first time anywhere, Daddy Sang Bass. Who was that bass singer on that, Richard? That is David Lutkin. David Lutkin is, is a person of so many talents
2: that it's just hard to pin him down. He plays the banjo, the guitar, the mandolin, the dobro, the harmonica. Um, I think I've left out two or three other things that, that, he, that he plays. And uh, uh, he plays the um, uh, classical guitar as well. And he is a wonderfully funny uh, singer and raconteur. And very and tall and lanky. Very tall and lanky. He looks kind of like uh, like uh, a stretched out Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> and, um, uh, and he's absolutely delightful. I mean, there's like nobody on the face of the earth who's like him and imagine how much fun we had trying to find an understudy for him
0: and one of the band members not one of the
2: actors he is actually lit- specifically one of the band members although he does bring the house down every night with with uh, a performance of Delia the famous Johnny Cash song which uh, I almost didn't put in the show because it, the story tells is so <laughs> horrifying except that I thought if David Ludkin did it it would be a comic masterpiece and I'm exactly right as you talk about
1: song choice and what you put in the show and what you didn't put in the show, you had a huge catalog, something like mm-hmm. 1500 songs. But you don't just have the songs that Johnny Cash wrote. You have a number of songs that mm-hmm. he made famous, but by mm-hmm. other singers or by other composers such as boy named Sue, which is by Shel Silverstein. Right. How did you make the choice between bringing in material that wasn't composed by him? As opposed to sticking just with
2: well, the, the stuff that is not that was not composed by him uh, are are things that are so personal in nature and and the, that are so connected to his almost to his biography that uh, if you 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 can't believe he didn't write it. He didn't write Sunday Morning Coming Down. Chris Christofferson did. He recorded it um, and had the had a famous record of it, uh, but it. Every detail in that song is it, is is parallel in Johnny Cash's own life. The same is true of the song that he recorded at the end of his life, called "Hurt." Trent Reznor's song uh, from Nine Inch Nails, of all places. And and uh, and uh, at the end of his life, um, this craggy voice <laughs> singing about how all he cared about was trying to rectify the wrongs, you know to somehow correct the people in his life that he had hurt. Um and that also exactly parallels Johnny Cashell. If you read his his his, his, his um, biographies, you get the sense that at the end of his life, this man who really had fame and, and money and everything that you could possibly want was haunted by being a better person. He he, he wasn't he hadn't corrected enough. He wanted to go back somehow and, and, and uh and undo anything that he had done wrong to anybody in his in his life, he felt unfinished, and that too that sense of redemption uh that he was searching is is in the show and i think i mean in, in a way, I think of the show as a man's search for his own soul and uh um, that's i think another part of of the uh of the touching uh journey of the of the show
1: well, as you talk about that journey we know that his wife predeceased him only by mm-hmm. a few months uh in some ways very fitting given the relationship they had but there are children mm-hmm. out there and have the
2: children been to see the show and what's their response well uh John Carter who is the only child of both of them i mean they had children separately it's a little hard to keep the, all of the mm-hmm. cast mm-hmm. of characters straight um but there's but John Carter Cash is uh is there their son uh he came to see the uh the show both in Buffalo and in New York. He is such a fan of the show uh he said that's my father up there that's my mother up there and he was particularly, when I first met him he was very concerned that the show uh, deal uh, fairly with his mother that uh that you know that june be be taken um, seriously uh you know she was a she was a comedian. She was a uh, uh, her 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 persona was a was a, a sort of a country Fanny Bryce and uh, um, and then she she um, uh, he wanted he wanted that and and he wanted to 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 know that we were going to deal with uh, with the richer side of you know the the full picture of his father uh, they are very complimentary about the movie but they know perfectly well that that leaves an awful lot out. I mean, if you look at the movie and you say that that's Johnny Cash, well, that's a little bit of Johnny Cash when he was young and uh uh he it you you you'd be hard pressed from the movie to know that he was a great artist and you'd hard be hard pressed to realize the expansiveness of his heart. And the expansiveness of his sense of humor. One of
1: the criticisms that some have had of the
2: movie is that it leaves out his abiding faith. Totally true. There's one little shot of a church towards the end, and uh, I mean, I must say, we, we we decided to just go there. I mean, at the end at the end of their life, they sang a song called the "Far Side Banks of Jordan," in which one of in which June uh, I don't know, the is really saying I, I have this feeling I'm going to die first, and if it if if and and that's probably okay, uh, except that I'll be leaving you. But the only thing that'll be good is that that when it's time, you, when it's your time to cross, I'll be waiting for you. It breaks your heart. It's mm. so touching. It was one of their favorite songs, and of course, it took them it took everyone by surprise. June was younger than Johnny, so everyone assumed that Johnny and Johnny was ill. Johnny had diabetes and all sorts of things. So everyone assumed that Johnny would die first.
0: And uh, uh, so it was a shock to everybody when June died first. Well, you have, uh, as both the creator of the show and also the director, you've been wearing a couple different hats. You've put together a very uh, talented uh, group of 14 performers, six of whom are actors. Several of the actors have never appeared on Broadway before. How did you... Go about assembling in your own mind, but also in reality, this, this talented group of people. Well, you know, um, country and western is is kind of uh, is
2: kind of unforgiving. You can either do it or you can't, and uh, there are a lot of people who think they can sing country. A lot of them are, you know, pretty well known Broadway performers, and then you hear somebody who really does. And there just isn't any you know, there isn't any contest. We went to Nashville, uh we found Larry White, who is a Grammy Award winning gospel singer, beautiful woman and a and an actress, uh just an extraordinary actress. Um Jason Edwards, who plays The Older Man, has done uh shows all over the country, but never in New York. Um and uh Beth Malone, who is the younger woman, um, is from uh, Colorado, from a family of of country singers. Um, has never played in New York. Had uh, done
1: most of her theater work on it, the West Coast, Los Angeles. Lots so of a Grand lots Hotel of, last season. Absolutely, lots of
2: of work in California, but um, hadn't had an occasion to come to New York, and uh, so we you know we found her. Um, then uh I mean the only real sort of Broadway uh, you know, heavyweight is Jason is uh, Jared Emick, who won a Tony for uh uh damn Yankees and who was um the original Chris in the national company of Miss Saigon. That's where I first encountered him, uh, young and raw and, and uh but he's from South Dakota and and uh has has all the natural Midwestern country uh Um, pedigree that you would need Uh, uh, and the remaining person in the cast is, uh, well the next, the remaining two are Jeb Jeb Brown he's sort of our closet eastern or I don't know, he he sings people say he sounds exactly like the young Willie Nelson he's from Connecticut and he went to Yale but But he's done a masterful job of hiding it all. And then, of course, Cass Morgan, who you probably know from, from Pump Boys and Dinettes. She was one of the authors of that show. And she's been uh, one of the mainstays of, uh, of Broadway for a long
0: time. And she does a great comic number in the show as She well. does. She does a sort of a mini Pearl number, yeah, which, is, yeah, which yeah. is very funny. Well, when we opened the show, I mentioned uh, not only Ring of Fire, but a long list of other shows that you've been involved in. And we'd be remiss not to talk about some of those. And certainly your long collaboration with David Shire.
2: Yes. Well, yeah, we met in uh, in college. I mentioned Yale. Yes, well, that's where we met, and so we actually wrote two shows when we were at Yale, and uh, and we've been writing together ever since. How many shows have you done together over the years? Well, um, if you count them all, about seven or eight. Um, uh, a couple of them never saw the light of day, but but uh, uh, we had an off Broadway show, you know, when we first came to New York, and then we did. Um, Oh, there was a show called "How Do You Do?" I love you that didn't ever come in, and another show called Love Match, and then finally we did Baby in New York, which was um, uh, just a, a labor of love. I mean, it <laughs> labor of love, Baby. Okay, um, but uh, but it really uh, it, it it's it's my uh, favorite score. I really think that David and I uh, sort of outdid ourselves on it, and uh, for for just sort of pouring feeling into uh, into into songs. And at the time that you did, baby, it
1: was seen as rather unusual because it was such a contemporary story and such a real story told on Broadway. There was it was much, much more realistic than a lot of the Broadway material.
2: No, I, know, well, I to don't be. understand why. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I mean you know it's it, it's it's funny. Uh, 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 people say, I mean, before Baby opened, there were a number of very big, sort of empty musicals that opened, and the reviews always said, "Oh, they have lots of scenery. Oh, they have lots of costumes." But we'd trade it all for a little heart, you know. So I thought, "Well, wait till they get us, because we're, you know, we're two hours of heart, and 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 that's that's all we've got." So when we opened, some of the re- reviews said, "Well, it's full of feeling, but I wonder if it's a Broadway show." Oh you know of course it's for a broadway show it's full of feeling you know uh and we we had a we 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 uh we took on uh a you know complex theme which was how the advent of children changes relationships you know how it was really about the bravery of becoming parents you know and
1: you were telling multiple stories multiple
2: stories i don't know why i'm stuck with that idea i can't seem to Settle down with just one story, um, but yes, no, multiple stories. Uh, three, three couples again, and and um, and we wanted to to. Um, it it really wasn't about babies per se. It was about how how your life changes with the advent of children or the concept of children, and uh, I mean, people it's this enormous act of bravery that people go through and it's the most commonplace thing in the world and it's so extraordinary which is you sort of um you know give up a portion of your ambition your life your dreams and everything in order to take care of some young some little thing that you know comes into your uh into your life it's it causes you to change your relationship. It causes you to change everything that you, all of your values, everything you thought you believed in changes, and and I thought that was an extraordinarily dramatic thing. It's a very subtle story in that sense, and uh, um, and very um, again uh, um, uh, heartwarming, heartbreaking. Uh,
0: um, and very touching. Well, David David Shire wrote the music. You wrote yes, the lyrics. Did, you yeah. also directed the show, besides being lyricist. I did, yeah, it? yeah. yeah. And Liz Calloway starred in the show, among she, others. She did. And I remember one very memorable song, The Story Goes On, from that well, show. Well,
2: you know, it was the end of the first act, and it, uh, the show covers, strangely enough, a nine-month time span. And uh, the... Sort of the first act ending is the is the moment when this young girl who's pregnant uh feels the baby kick for the first time. It exactly corresponds to the halfway mark of the you know in the in the pregnancy anyway and of course, it was the moment when her life changed totally she was a, she was until that moment sure that she knew everything and suddenly had a, a had a vision of her connection to her child to her her mother her mother's mother uh, that suddenly she was she saw herself as not just an individual but as a part of a long line of life and uh, it utterly changed the way that she thought of herself and of life and we david had written an absolutely gorgeous melody and uh, um the lyric took me a long time
0: but i was very proud of it From Ain't Misbehavin, Handful of Keys, Stride Piano Style. Ain't Misbehavin, that was your, your first real Broadway... Uh, it was part. my first Broadway show, yeah.
2: But
1: it bears remembering that it didn't spring fully to life as a big Broadway hit. Ain't Misbehavin started very small.
2: In a tiny cabaret in, in the Manhattan Theater
1: Club. And we should say the Manhattan Theater Club in the days when they were a neighborhood theater on East Seventy-Third Street. And this wasn't even in the theater there; it was their cabaret it was, it space. Was,
2: it was in some in a room they didn't know what to do with, so they decided to call it a cabaret. And a little, it had a stage that was about eight feet wide and four eight feet long and four feet wide. And we did the whole show on that on that space. However, it had we discovered Nell Carter; that was her first job. Um, Andre DeShields had just done The Whiz. Ken Page had just done the, the Black Guys and Dolls, and um, um, Armelia Armelia McQueen was this exotic, one, wonderful person. Charlene Woodard was the other person in the Broadway production, but, but, but in Irene the first Cara. one it was Irene Cara. Irene Cara, people Cara, know from Fame, who everybody knows from Fame and and from all of her records. But she was, uh, you know, just a, I think nineteen years old, mm-hmm. completely unknown.
1: But how did you? expand the show because the scale of what you do in a, in a tiny stage in a tiny room as it grows you want to
2: know something it's exactly the same show we added a band which made it seem a little bit larger uh, there's a big there's a scenic trick and that is that the proscenium keeps getting smaller and smaller and there's a, 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 a red space in the middle that's not much bigger than the than the eight feet by four feet that we were playing it originally um the majority of the show remained almost exactly the same It's stretched out just a little bit but it's uh, pretty much there we added the band we added a couple of about five numbers and uh,
1: I do want to ask we, we avoided the word at the beginning but as as people have been writing about uh, Ring of Fire they keep referring to you as the, the father or godfather oh, of please the don't. jukebox yes. musical <laughs> yes. and I just need to ask you how you feel about that idea? I want to say, although although uh, "Ain't Misbehavin'" is often pointed to, I certainly remember a show called "Beatlemania," which predated mm-hmm. uh, "Ain't Misbehavin'" by a couple of years. So you certainly weren't the the first. You were the first to do it
0: particularly well and successfully.
2: Uh, that's that's true. It was the first real sort of you know blockbuster of, of that sort. It just means using pre existing music. That's all. Um, and um. Uh, 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 you know it, it it if you use it in a theatrical way i think it's com- a completely justified thing to do um what uh i think a, what people call things ju- jukebox musicals to, are responding to is the it seems like a, just an excuse to take known songs and stick them on the stage and that audiences will be um comforted because they already know the songs um you know broadway has always been the home of, uh, new songs. You go to the theater to hear something new. And which, of course, you yourself are more than capable of writing. Totally true. But, you know, in, in, in Ain't Misbehavin', aside from, uh, the song Ain't Misbehavin', Honeysuckle Rose, I've Got a Feeling I'm Falling and Keep It Out of Mischief Now and Maybe Mean to Me. Um, all, almost all of the songs were new to, to most of the audience. Uh, and, uh, so it it wasn't a sense of just trotting out a whole bunch of big hits um, it was a lot of them were quite obscure songs and then I wrote lyrics to instrumentals i mean there were there were it was a definite definitely a song uh, a show that intended to have you listen as if you were listening to new songs
0: well, if you look up the dictionary meaning of the word diva it's has no pejorative content, whatever, <laughs> but diva has been, been used generally in a pejorative sort of a way. You so know, the to, first time
2: I heard that term?
0: Was it? In my cast, the
2: the cast of Eight Misbehaving referred to each other as divas, <laughs> and uh, I guess it had happened
0: beforehand, but that was the first time I had heard of it. But well, it could be dits, divas in training. Ah, uh, well, yes, indeed. Yes. <laughs> well, jukebox musicals generally used in a pejorative way at all. Uh, also, so so, how do you feel when people say Ring of Fire or Fosse or Ain't Misbehaving or jukebox? Well, they, I mean, they don't call Fosse a jukebox not, musical,
2: no, and really. yet, really, that's in in a funny way, it's more than 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 the others because the the songs are. Pretty much well known, um, but that's a that's a show about a chore- choreographers, and they were
1: material that was originally written for the stage. Right. So it has, in a different many cases,
2: idea. yeah, and and it it had a theatricality to it and a theatrical use to it. So long as there is theatricality, I don't think that there is a you know there is anything pejorative about it. it it's it's uh, I don't know. I think kind of lazy people who don't uh, like to. Uh, think about what they're doing um, use terms like that
0: well you certainly have some shows that anything but starting here starting now closer than ever two very noted uh, off-Broadway shows that you and David Shire Mm -hmm, collaborated on how how did those come about
2: well those are reviews those are our our song collections we 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 sometimes we write songs without a, without a specific home, and sometimes we write songs for reviews or for something like that. We had a collection of songs that we, many of which were connected to uh, shows that for one reason or other, hadn't succeeded. So, but we really liked them. And so we thought, actually, Lynn Meadow, who um, we knew from Yale.
1: The artistic director of the Manhattan Theater Club. The artistic Club.
2: director of the Manhattan Theater Club was twelve years old and uh, at, in New Haven, and she was, we, we needed a bunch of school kids in a show that we wrote there, and she was in it, and uh, and it sort of changed her life, and uh, so we were in a kind of a special place for her, and and so when when she she came to New York, and out of nowhere, uh, was given the Manhattan Theater Club, a company that was about to go under it'd been uh, around for
1: a year or two it'd been around least. for a
2: year and it was it was dying it had it had nothing but debts and uh, and and how would you like to take it over miss meadow and she did and for a, about two years it was a big a big uh, uh, it was nip and tuck but it started to go and then she she said well why don't we do an evening of of uh Shire songs and uh, I thought that was a horrible idea and then and then uh, we we decided to um, to do it, and it made me suddenly terribly fond of these songs again. I realized <laughs> what we what we had written
1: and we talk keep talking about you as a writer uh, When did you begin directing? How did that come to be
2: well you know it 's really when I came to New York, and I was a lyricist i couldn 't it was incredibly frustrating because um lyricist is always back in the hotel trying to fix those two terrible lines which if you know if you'd written them if you could have written good ones you would have written them before <laughs> as if you're just stuck with it and everyone else is at the theater having a lot of fun uh and it it began to drive me crazy because i realized that that uh, to me the the writing was it was a function of the creating of the show and um uh, it wasn't just the writing of the words it was the writing of the show and to which the words you know and the words were feeding into it um and i uh, i went into some very expensive therapy and the result (laughs) of which was um that (laughs) i was sitting on this impulse to create the whole show and uh oh is that what this is this is you know so i set out to uh to learn how to be a director and I did all sorts of things I did nightclub acts and, and uh, little reviews and shows out of town I, basically anybody who asked me to do anything I said yes to and um, uh, one woman shows and stuff like that and, uh, and when I got to Amos Behaven um, I really felt as I was working on the show that everything that I had done in the preceding 10 years every lesson I had learned was feeding into this show
0: then Miss Saigon at some point. Ah, uh-huh, yes. yes. Tell us about your involvement well, af- with that.
2: After um, After Baby opened, and and Baby is pretty notable for the um, the lyrics. I mean, the, the lyric. I'm very proud of the lyrics of them. They're, they are written in a very uh, realistic style. They're 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 rhymed and they're clever, but they are all in a in a voice that you'd you you'd use no, they're in normal speech and, and I think that's the, the achievement of it. Um and uh when uh, um, uh Cameron McIntosh had Cameron Macintosh had, had invited me to um to come to England um to talk to Andrew Lloyd Weber about working on uh, aspects of love of all things and um uh and in the course of by, I came out of that with uh, Song and Dance uh, be, be invited to direct the American production of Song and Dance which I did with Bernadette Peters and won her a Tony and all that. Um, and after that uh, he had done uh, Les Mis with uh, Claude Michel Schoenberg and Alain Boublil and they were doing their next show they didn't know what, they wouldn't tell me what it was but he sort of began to hint would I be interested in writing lyrics for something else uh, for a different kind of show and uh, and you know as always happens I turned it down I said you know of course not I have to do this show with David and uh, besides that um, they played me a, a tape of uh, Claude Michel at the piano and uh, singing in French and uh, I I, I was hard pressed to figure out what was going on I thought the music was wonderful I must say but I didn't get what, what they were doing um, then I saw uh, Les Mis, and I re- understood the style of sort of the sort of operatic style that they were writing in, and then they were writing a show about Vietnam. Um, they were, it you know, it was sort of the the, Miss, uh, the Madame Butterfly story, but it was set in Vietnam, which altered everything, and. uh I began to do some research into it, and I thought that the, the you know it's set at the fall of Saigon, the very very end of the war, and uh, it's just one of the most dramatic stories ever told. And uh, and because of the uh, the fact that when the city fell, you could not um, uh, expect to make contact with anyone back in the country. It, it freed our lovers to be actually in love as and f- and and solve the one problem of. Of uh, Madame Butterfly, which is that Pinkerton's a shit, and <laughs> you know. But where? How did you fit into their process? They
1: were a team. They'd created shows previously. Their style was is that they translated.
2: Write, they write the whole. They write the whole show, uh, Claude, and uh, Alain writes it in French, um, and he feels that he has to do that first. Uh, and after he does that, um, then then he will go to a collaborator. Cameron was convinced because it was Vietnam that it needed an American collaborator, somebody who could bring an American sensibility to the story. And I think he was really right because uh, Europeans don't kind of understand Vietnam. Oh, we've been losing colonies for a year. What, what are you getting so upset about? They didn't understand that it was our mythology that was dying, our whole John Wayne comes over the hill and saves the day. Uh, you know, this was the first war we ever lost, the first war in which we were the bad guys. And, um, and our belief in our, our, the rightness of our cause collapsed. Uh, it was a much more devastating event than simply losing. And uh, uh, I don't think the Europeans totally understand that.
1: Before we wrap, I have to ask about your penchant for creating puzzles. <laughs> Certainly, a lyricist has enough challenges setting words to music in certain meters, et cetera, et cetera. but you are quite famously a creator of puzzles, and along with Mr. Sondheim, considered one of the, the two great lovers of puzzles and intricacies. Where did where did that all come from? And it came then- from
2: Steve. Steve did Steve introduced the cryptic puzzle to America in New York Magazine when New York Magazine was founded and he did it for a couple of years and then then he it was becoming too time consuming so he was going to stop doing it and by then I'd become obsessed with it and I said well maybe I could take over and I did and I did it for New York Magazine for about 10 years then I took some years off and then Harper's came back and asked me to do once a, one a month and uh, that I thought I could do and uh, I've been doing it ever since. You know, it, 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 I think it comes from the fact that lyric writing is, is really technical language. It's finding the exact meaning on a pre-existing rhythm. You know, you have to say what you want to say and at the same time all of your accents are given. So it's a real... Um, you're you, you constantly saying the same line over and over again, adjusting it slightly. Do you write you know, to
1: David's music? I Does, write to the music. So in yeah. other words, you're not writing a poem that David then sets. No. David writes
2: a... Okay. He, we do occasionally do that, but but mostly David writes much more interesting music when left alone, and I write much more interesting lyrics when I write to his music because because the, the structures are, are, are stranger, um, and I find that if I find a language... That exactly coincides with the oddity of the musical line; um, it 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 comes alive. So that's the way I like to do it. So it's basically manipulation of language, and of course, that's what these puzzles are. They're all about manipulation of language.
0: Well, Richard, you are always credited as Richard Maltby Jr. Many of our listeners probably wonder who senior was. Your dad was a big band leader. And well, ranger. I think a lot
2: of people across the country would know him. Uh, some of our younger, uh, listeners. younger people would be surprised. Right. Uh, my father was a a, a great. Uh, orchestrator, mm-hmm. or an arranger, and then became a band leader in the fifties and traveled all over the country. Uh, played my junior prom at Yale, of all places. Mm-hmm. Um, and, Must uh, be embarrassing. Your oh, dad playing big, your junior prom. It was. Uh, it was humiliating. No, it was <laughs> wonderful. It was really. It was great. Uh, um, and uh, I, I, I really, I loved him, but more than that, I loved his music, um, and I. I wondered sometimes why I, where I got this sense of structure, and I seem to have a sort of innate sense of structure, um, and I think it came from sitting in his recording sessions and hearing these two and a half minute little constructions, these p- perfect pieces of architecture uh, that he he wrote, um, and it got to me through the skin because I used to go to all of his recording sessions and. Uh,
0: well, no pun intended, but on that note, ha, ha, ma, ha. <laughs> Richard Mulpey, Jr., thanks for being with us today on Downstage Center.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here.
1: Thanks, Richard. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman reminding our listeners that all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org.
0: And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you.